But it's very appreciative of the opportunity to again share the Word of God. And if you will, if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Pastor Tim did a wonderful job a couple of weeks ago introducing us and getting us started with this study as we plow our way through this gospel. As short as it is, very powerful, very purposeful, and I trust that we will continue to uh, reap the benefit of God's Word as we continue our study. It's very similar to when we were going through the Old Testament. Uh, it, we have this way of putting it where there's a common thread that runs through it all. Uh, it's very important. I was sharing with our, our home group this past week uh, that even in the book of Mark or any of the Gospels for that matter, it's very easy to compartmentalize each narrative And while it's very possible to preach through the Gospel of Mark and looking at each individual circumstance and making a sermon in and of itself, there's great truth to that, there's great benefit to that, but it's very important that we remember that as the Holy Spirit was inspiring men to write the Word of God, that as Mark was collecting these stories, most likely from Peter and perhaps other sources, that he had a common theme in mind that went from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 16. And that as we go through the challenge, and when Pastor Tim asks to, you know, would you preach this particular passage, the first thing is like, I'm supposed to do all of that in one sermon. Uh, Richard can attest to this, and uh, Pastor Chad, and anyone else who's been a part of any of these studies. It's really easy to be overwhelmed with all of that, well, when you start looking at it, it's like, well, can I just keep going on? Because the thought continues. And some of you are thinking, well, I've heard you preach, and I know you do go on. Um, and so I'll try to make, Amy didn't take my watch, so I do have that today. But hopefully in the time that we have, that we can learn much about our Savior. It's, we, we live in a day where it is very common for people to except as fact that Jesus isn't who he said he was. And more specifically, who Jesus is according to the scriptures. You don't have to be a student in in a university today to be confronted with that thought, even though you will find it very prevalent in the universities and colleges today, as well as it's leaking through into high school, and really basically the whole philosophy of education as it relates to religion and philosophy, that Jesus really wasn't God. He never claimed to be God, and therefore you can just simply devalue anything that he says of any eternal significance, because after all, he was just simply a good teacher, even though by their definition that would create a huge liar, even in their minds and by their definitions. And so when you speak to somebody at work or when you speak to somebody in your neighborhood or maybe even in your family and you try to relate to them the one who has changed your life, the one to whom you have committed your goals and your ambitions and the one who you have followed, they'll look back at you and really not take you very seriously because after all that's your experience with a person that they really don't believe in. At least to the degree that we do 
according to the creed that we read this morning and to the songs that we sing and to the doctrines that we commit ourselves to as a member of this church. We can try to alleviate that by doing what we do in life, like ask questions and try to get to the root of where they're at and try to figure out who they are, trying to get them to see who Jesus Christ is. We are in the midst of hiring at the company that I work for, and I'm, as one being involved in that hiring process, I listen to answers that are posed to applicants, trying to figure out what their experiences are and who they are and how that's going to fit in our workplace if it does, in fact, fit. We have debates for individuals who are running for public office. And we ask them questions and we try to figure out where they're coming from and where they're going and try to figure out what their philosophy of life is and we try to get it where they're at. But when it comes to Jesus, we, we can't give him a phone interview and get him to respond back to questions. We can't put him on a stage with maybe other religious figures and try to figure out where he is in comparison to everyone else. We're left with something better than that. We're left with Scripture that is inspired by the Spirit of God who reveals to us someone who is beyond our wildest imaginations important. And when we come to the Gospel of Mark, we're introduced to somebody who um, is like nobody else. And if there was a takeaway from today's message, it would be Jesus Christ is the Son of Man like no other. Now that's almost like saying you're special and unique like everybody else. Now there's a certain sense of ironic humor in that, but when you turn that around, we see that Jesus Christ came as the Son of Man but like no other son of man. That is, interestingly, one of the facets. If you were to go on the internet or look in the library or uh, however you search for information and, and try to discover, why is it that people do not believe that Jesus is God? Then they would say, well, he referred to himself more than any other phrase as the son of man, and rightfully so. It's important for us not to ignore that because there is great significance in that. In Mark chapter 2, uh, we see the first usage that Mark uses as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. But he does this nearly 80 times throughout the Gospels. And you would think that of all the descriptions that you could bring to yourself, if you were wanting the entire existence of mankind to believe that you are God, why would you use more than any other statement that I'm the Son of Man? Well, it's really important that we understand that before we go any further in the text that we're looking at, but when we think about Jesus Christ himself in any text within Scripture. And first we'd have to go back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel is receiving a vision from God concerning that which will be the consummation of things. And he says in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now there have been commentators since this has been discovered to try to explain it away, saying, well, this was the Roman Empire, or this was some rule, like uh, Alexander the Great, or this is a whole group of believers in God, whether it be the Jewish people or the church itself, as some representation of God's kingdom. But it's very important that we understand that Daniel sees someone who comes like the Son of Man. That's important because throughout the Old Testament, when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, it's, it's given to us in clear language which don't trust in the Son of Man because we're sinful. But yet Daniel says, I see someone like a Son of Man coming and he's going to be the one who reigns forever. So what's, what's, what gives? Is this contradictory? Is this, is this really something that we should... Uh, cause us to lose our faith in what the Scriptures are saying? I, I don't believe so. I think that it's very important that when we consider what Daniel saw in the consummation of all things in which this kingdom will come that will have no end, that we sort of tie this up, and if you will, turn over with me to Hebrews chapter uh, 2. And as we look at before Christ came and after Christ ascended back into heaven, it will help us as we look in Christ's life on earth. Hebrews chapter 2. Again, the book of Hebrews is the basic element of thought through the whole book is about the superiority of Christ. Namely, that He is the great high priest that we have on our behalf who makes intercession before, between us and God. But in verse 14, if you will follow along, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise also partook of the same. So there we have it. We have a word speaking about the incarnation of Christ, Jesus coming in the flesh, speaking as if it's assumed that he was... Prior to this, right? That he came, he partook of the same. That is, he partook of flesh and blood. That he existed apart from flesh and blood at some point. But because the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. That through death, and there's the key, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's extremely significant. It's not that Jesus is limited to being a man, but it's important that we understand as Christians that it's, it's foundational to what we believe, that Jesus Christ became a man. 
Daniel saw someone who looked like a man. Why? Because that's who he became. Why did he become a man? So that he could relate and sympathize with us, but more importantly, so that he could die like us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And if we wanted to have a perfect, complete sacrifice that would atone for our sins, that would satisfy the holy wrath of a holy, righteous God, we needed someone who was perfect. In the Old Testament, it's correct to say that you shouldn't trust the Son of Man. It's it's very important that we understand the frailty of man. And to understand that Jesus Christ who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made himself equal with God. But he humbled himself and came in the form of man. Why? So that he could die a perfect, sinless death for us. So you see, for those skeptics who want to deny the deity of Christ simply because He referred to Himself as the Son of Man, they don't understand why He came. They don't understand Christianity. They don't understand that there is not one among us who can sacrifice ourselves for the sake of all of mankind and satisfy God because we are all sinful. We are all, not just tainted with sin, but we are totally depraved in our sin. And we have all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. All of us. And there's none righteous. Not one of us. So Jesus Christ came in the form of man. He took upon Himself flesh and blood because all of the children of mankind, that's what we are. And in order to purchase and to redeem us, He became the Son of Man. He became what we could never be on our own. So that we could become something that we would never be on our own. Someone who could praise God forever because we would be now removed from our sin. If we come and repent and place our faith and trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who has finished and completed all that's required to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is speaking about, being our propitiation. He satisfies every requirement that God demands for righteousness. It's not because of us. It's not our righteousness. It's not our works of goodness that we have done that has redeemed us. But it's by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's not Mark chapter 2 verse 1 through chapter 3 verse 12. But you can't understand this passage or anything else about Jesus Christ if you do not grasp and understand that very basic identity of who Jesus Christ is. Now, to Mark chapter 2. Jesus returned back to Capernaum. Pastor Tim left us from chapter 1. He had to leave the crowds. He went back home. It was heard that he was at home. And when people found out he was home, that's where they began to gather. To the point where there was no more room, not even in the doorway. 
Now, we have to understand in the culture in which Jesus lived, the doorway was more than just simply the door frame in which this door swung out, in and out, letting people in and out of the structure in which he lived. The door was really the, included the gate around his house for the home in which he was living. But room ran out. But in verse 2, it's very interesting to note what he was doing all along. Preaching the word to them. And they came and they brought a paralytic carried by four men. We won't read through the whole passage. We've already done so in our service. But the people were gathering around to such a degree that you couldn't see Christ. You weren't exposed to his person. And so you had to be creative if you really wanted to get to where he was at. So they began removing the roof of this home and lowered this paralytic down. And Jesus, verse 5, saw their faith. You see, they satisfied James' concern about a dead faith or a faith that's not alive. He determined that they had faith because he saw what they were doing. And that's exactly what we've been called to do, to have a living faith. But this was not just merely faith in this person is a phenomenal speaker. Or faith in that somehow they would gain some privilege by being close to him. But this was a faith in this person is like no other person we've ever seen before. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'd been in that situation, I would have been like, Son, you've got a lot of work to do because you just tore my roof up. But Jesus' ministry wasn't about that. Jesus was about doing the Father's work. And he goes right to, again, it's not circumstantial, right? Didn't just happen to be a situation where this person was lost. But Jesus said, your son, sin is forgiven. The scribes who were sitting there questioned their heart, why does this man speak like that? Doesn't he realize he's, he's blaspheming God? Doesn't he realize that he's... He's taking credit for doing something that only God can do. Now, that would be great for the skeptics who believe that Jesus, who describes himself as the Son of Man, never claimed to be God, but yet you find himself doing things that only God is being credited for doing. The scribes figured it out. They says, why is he speaking such things? This is blasphemy. And Jesus not only was able to see the faith of these who made this paralytic available to him is also able to perceive what was going on in their minds. Again, something only God can do. And he asked them the question, do you really have a problem with this? Because what's easier for me to do? To say, get up and walk? Or to say your sins are forgiven? Well, they were in a quandary, right? Because only God can do either one of those things. 
But he says, and I think this is very important for us to notice, because what does Jesus Christ do throughout his ministry for these people who were seeking a sign? He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, guys. Since you are so pressing me to do something that will signify my importance, I want to let you know, but by this you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins on earth. So he satisfied their whim and said, Oh, by the way, get up and walk. He didn't take back the forgiveness. He just gave them a sign saying, Just so that you know, I'm going to heal him while saving him from his sin. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, We've never saw, we never saw anything like this. Because Jesus Christ is a son of man like no other. No other son of man can forgive sin. No other son of man can heal the paralytic. Jesus Christ alone. The forgiveness that he provided is one in which the, the word is translated that literally means to send away. This was not Jesus just simply saying, you know, I'm going to overlook your sin and heal you. I'm actually going to remove the sin of, of, from a, a, you know, over you that's casting this guilt and burden on you that you, can know, you cannot bear on your own. I'm removing it. I'm sending it away. Just as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, you are served from Christ you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit by faith we eagerly ourselves wait for the hope of righteousness. Because why? Jesus Christ has sent our sin away. We've been free. We've been liberated. The Jews were accustomed to forgiveness coming through what? Sacrifices, through going through the priesthood. But Jesus does not work that way. Because he realizes that he's the only sacrifice that's going to atone for our sin. It's just as David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Again, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith today, He will say, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. I send them away. I hope that this morning, if you are here, and the only Jesus that you know is the good teacher, or perhaps even the one who gave his life because he loved many, but yet you've never come to understand that the work of the cross was for you. That your sins were put away, nailed on a cross, with Him, so that you could be free, that you would come by faith and just freely accept this gift that today would be that day. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. 
Don't put it off. Don't be deceived. Don't be like the, the, the religious rulers who were just accustomed to doing it the old way and just, well, I'm going to offer a sacrifice. I'm going to live a better life or I'm going to turn over a new leaf. But that the only hope that I have is found in Jesus Christ and no other. The Son of Man came to, to take on flesh and blood so that He could die for me. Let this be that day. Jesus here made it very clear that He was exercising divine power. He was no mere Son of Man. He was a Son of Man like no other because He exercised divine power. He could not only raise the man who could not walk, but more importantly, He could forgive his sin. But as we go further, we see that Jesus Christ demonstrated His deity by engaging in a divine mission. In verse 13, He went out again by the seashore. And all the people were coming to Him and was teaching them. And He, he passed by and He saw Matthew or Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And He said, Follow me. And just like those that Pastor Tim introduced us to in chapter 1, he got up and followed him. Now interestingly enough, just as the first group of individuals that Jesus called to follow him as his disciples were fishermen, at least they were Jewish. At least they had a Jewish identity that while they were unlearned from the scholarly perspective... They were Old Testament sort of people. You can sort of figure out why Jesus would relate to them, but here, Levi is one of those guys. He's one of those who collects customs as people are going in and out. And it wasn't for tithes and offerings to the temple. It was for the collection for the Roman government. And if you think you have hostility towards the IRS today, which may be legitimate to some degree. Uh, just as long as you're giving to Caesar what's Caesar's. Um, the Jewish people completely resented tax collectors, publicans. Those who not only were on the Romans' side, if you will, but who collected their money. But not only collected their money, but extortion more money for themselves because they had the ability to do so. And Jesus has the nerve to call one of them to be one of His nearest disciples. Which speaks wonders of His ability to save those who we would consider to be so far gone in their sin and their rejection of anything that's moral and good Jesus calls. And when Jesus calls, we follow. There was a miracle that happened in Levi's life that he heard the voice of his shepherd call. And he followed him. Now, while we could get sidetracked with this, it leads us to something much bigger. Because in verse 15... 
Jesus not only called Levi to be his disciple, but Jesus was found reclining at the dinner table, which we can't make any more of that from our cultural context than what's there. That's just the way they reclined and they ate together. But he was in his, speaking of Levi's, house. And many tax collectors were there. And sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Now let's make sure that we don't misread this. It's important that we note who is following and who is leading. This was not Jesus following after the tax collectors and the sinners saying, hey guys, you got a pretty good business over there and my house is kind of shabby and y'all look like y'all are doing pretty good so maybe I could learn some things from you. Maybe I could get some of the principles that y'all use in extorting money from people and I could actually use that in a way... Now that sounds like a television preacher, but, I, but Jesus was like, I, I don't need that. Jesus was the one who was teaching. And he had many followers. There's two things that we can take from this, I believe, and I'll just leave this to the side. It's going to be a long time anyway for the sermon, so just sit tight. And the two things that we can just add right here, that number one, Jesus did not run from the world. There's an element within Christianity that in its good intentions, I believe, in its desire to keep itself pure and undefiled from the world, simply removes itself from the world. Now I know that sounds, that's a very dangerous statement to say because with our human minds we can take that to a lot of places. But don't take, make any more of that than what I just said. There are some places you shouldn't be. But for us to remove ourselves from the world is something Jesus would, you know, that would be in conflict with. The second thing is to understand that we, when we are with the world, need to be do what Jesus was doing. And that was about proclaiming the good news. So just as a side note there, just put that aside and email me and give me calls about why that shouldn't have been part of the message. Or perhaps maybe why it was encouraging because we need to understand Jesus was sitting, he was eating with sinners. And that term often was referring to people who, not just because they were doing things that were sinful, but really because they were specifically eating in unclean ways. They were undefiled in their eating practices. But sometimes... That's where they're at. And if they're following you because of what you're doing and what, how you're living and, and, and who you are in Christ, then may God find us reclining and having dinner with a sinner who gives ear to the Word of God. He wasn't in there playing, you know, bar games and uh, gambling and, and living in a world of prostitution. He wasn't following sinners. They were following Him. He called Levi, Matthew, because Matthew was a bridge to those people. Matthew says, Jesus, 
come to my house. I've got other people who would love to hear what you've got to say. Not the other way around. Jesus is engaged in a divine mission here. He makes it really clear. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And as much as we embrace the idea that this world is not our home, we need to have the same thought about the people who we live around. That we're not here to identify, oh, we've got a bunch of righteous people, and so let's kind of remove ourselves. But no, until Jesus Christ comes back, we're living in a world of sinners, and we need to be proclaiming the good news of who Jesus Christ is. He's a son of man like no other. He's able to forgive you of your sins. He's able to restore the paradise that's been lost as we talked about in our Christian growth group this morning. We need to remember the faithful saying that Paul shares with Timothy in chapter 1 of his first letter. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom... I'm the biggest one. And the reason why he did it, that as me being the worst sinner of them all, Jesus Christ could exhibit to the rest of the world and to everyone who would believe in him for eternal life, could see God's long-suffering and his patience with me. So before we start being so judgmental of the world who is in sin out there, Remember, Jesus Christ saved me so that the rest of the world, for the unbelieving world who would become believers, could see me as an example to follow. That God in His patience can save the worst. That's what Jesus Christ does. That's a divine mission. Jesus didn't come here just to live a perfect, sinless life to make us feel bad that we can't live up to His standard. He came to save Sinners. That's a divine mission. That's what the Son of Man, who's like no other, can do. The last thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus rules with divine authority, like no other. Now, this is sort of introduced to us by way of. A parable in and of itself that distracts us. Because we start looking at this passage uh, in verse or chapter three. I'm sorry, verse chapter two, verse eighteen, where Jesus is, you know, not necessarily in the same context of being at Levi's house where they're partying, to the Pharisees description. But somewhere later on. One of John the Baptist's disciples comes and says, why don't your disciples fast? You may scratch your head and think, Mark, are you, did you like just go to sleep at chapter 2, verse 17 and wake up the next morning and start writing the gospel again? There's some purpose for this because Mark's setting the scene. That yes, in Jesus' life there was a time when one of John, John's disciples came and said, why, did, why do your disciples not fast? Why did they not take that seriously? Because 
the Old Testament tells us we need to fast. Now, we have to be honest that there was one fast that was required during the Day of Atonement that would reflect the, the believer's need and desperation to God. But there have been other days that it's sort of been kind of added along the way, that days of fasting and that we should be fasting all the time. And they said, Jesus, why didn't your disciples fast? And Jesus, as the Son of Man, says, well, I'm the bridegroom. You, you don't fast while the bridegroom's here. There's going to come a day when the bridegroom's not going to be here, and that day you better believe you, you better be fasting. But I'm here. Again, the presence of God has just entered into the world in a way that wasn't before. This is not just a mere man. This is not just another son of man. This is a son of man like no other. He, God has now come on the scene. The time for fasting is not now. There's going to come a day, but not now. Just like you would never put a patch, a new patch on old clothes because the old clothes are just simply going to tear apart. And just like you would never put new wine into an old wine basket, it's going to split when the, when the wine starts to ferment. You don't put new stuff, you don't put life into things that are old and dead. Speaking about their traditions. You're not going to come to salvation through your fasting. You're going to come through salvation through celebrating the bridegroom. Again, another term in the Old Testament that God only used for Himself. Jesus never claimed to be God. But the bridegroom is here. And that leads us on into a couple of traditions. Two old wineskins, if you will, that Jesus addresses. First of all, the Sabbath. In verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. His disciples, they were taking food on the Sabbath day because they were hungry. The religious leaders were like, don't they know this is the Sabbath day? You're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath day. And Jesus reminds them again, even when the Scriptures don't say Jesus was teaching or Jesus was preaching, what is Jesus doing? He's using the Word. He says, don't you remember David? David did this in the temple. He took, he took the, the table of showbread that represented the presence of God and he ate of it because he needed it. So I think that as if I'm Lord over mankind and the Sabbath has been given to man, I'm Lord over the Sabbath day. I think I can handle that, fellas. And we need to understand what the Sabbath was. It was a blessing. It was a blessing. God modeled it during the week of creation. But on the seventh day, He rested. And in the law, Moses included to say, just like God rested, you rest. It was a blessing. It wasn't to be a burden. It wasn't to be some manipulation of your schedule so that you couldn't do what you wanted to do or what you, more importantly, needed to do. But it had been turned into a, to a yoke. It had been turned into something that was hampering life as opposed to encouraging the blessing of rest. And Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And what my disciples are doing is not in contradiction to what God intended. 
And there was another situation that Mark records that there was even a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. And they were waiting to see, is he going to heal him on the Sabbath day? Because that would be more work. And as we all know, as the Scripture makes it very clear, Jesus says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? Is it okay if I save life on the Sabbath day or just let somebody die? And He looked around at them with anger. If your Christianity does not have room for a God who gets angry, your Christianity isn't genuine and biblical. Jesus was angry when He looked at what they were holding on to. They were more comfortable and they were more secure in their rituals that had been added to the law to provide them righteousness than they were to allow the Creator, Lord of the Sabbath day, to rule and to reign over life itself. Now Jesus, obviously being without sin, He was angry. He did not sin. But what He did do, is He said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, and it was restored. He healed him. Why? Because He's Lord of the Sabbath day. Not Lord of the Sabbath, as we find in Romans, as well as in the book of James, where that's a similar word about the Lord of hosts, but actually the Lord of the Sabbath. And just as another side note here, read the book of Hebrews and find out what that Lord of the Sabbath has done for you. He has provided you rest. He's the anchor of our soul. But that's another sermon. So, Jesus ruled with divine authority. He took two aspects uh, of their life. Two things uh, that were main conflicts. One, that the Jewish leaders had that he would claim to be the Messiah. The other, that he would be able to actually work to do things on the Sabbath day. Those were two things that led us to what we see in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And this is the beginning of what we're going to see lived out through the rest of the Gospel about how Jesus' enemies began in their hatred for Him because apparently they were confused. They needed some modern scholarship to remind them, Jesus never claimed to be God. They thought that He did. Or they would not be pursuing His death. Jesus withdrew Himself even to the point where He got up against the sea again. He told them to hey, float me out in the boat so at least I can have room to see everybody on, in, the, in the group. And once again, as Pastor Tim reminded us in chapter 1, that of all the people that had seen Jesus heal and do His miracles and heard Him teach with authority like no one has ever done, it was the demons who speak the loudest falling before Him, saying, You are the Son of God. And He ordered them to stop, to not make Him known. It wasn't because Jesus was saying, Hey guys, I'm not the Son of God. You're, you're fooling all these people. He's saying, I don't want the testimony of who I am to come from you. 
So you be quiet. You stop doing that. Because I want people to see me for who I am apart from your testimony. I want them to see who I am, the Son of Man like no other. I'm the Son of God. And I've proven that by exercising divine power. I'm proving that by engaging in a divine mission to save the world from its sin. And I'm doing it as I rule with divine authority. I created this world. I established a day of rest. I can do with that what I will. I'm the Lord. And there were those who did give glory to Him. There were those who did fall down and worship. There were those who left their life to follow Him. And that's what He's calling us to do today. Jesus says, if any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me daily. God has been so gracious to reveal Himself through His Word. I just wonder if you, as you just bow your head and just in the quietness of this moment, to hear the Word of God. That the Son of Man has come to save sinners. He hasn't come for the righteous. He's come for sinners. Is that you? Jesus Christ came to make disciples. He says, come follow me. Is that you? Is the Word of God calling you to deny yourself? To take up your cross and to follow Him today? The Word of God tells us that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of all. And perhaps there are things in your life, circumstances that overwhelm you, needs that seem unattainable, a life that seems beyond your reach. He's the Lord of it all. And He has revealed Himself through His Word. Will you trust Him today?